Hello, and welcome to this episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Catherine Troyer, and as always, I get to be joined by the one and only Tony Tresca. Hey there! This is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic, as we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so excited to have you join us on our continuation of the Friday the 13th franchise for Friday the 13th, Part 6, Jason Lives! Bum, bum, bum. He's back, baby. It's the 80s, and he's they gotta keep cranking these out, and I'm honestly glad they did. I'm also excited to talk about this film and excited that they kept going, and I wasn't sure that was a statement I would be able to make like six films into the franchise, especially after the last couple of films that were more what I always imagined the Friday the 13th franchise to be. And granted, from our conversation on the fifth one, that one was at least a little bit more interesting. I kind of enjoyed the twist that they did with Tommy at the end, more than the general Friday the 13th fan community, but it's a continued- Yeah, it's also just like nudity for nudity's sake, you know. Yeah, it just continues the trend of it. It is a little bit worse each time. But this one, I would say it kind of turns it around. It brings in some postmodern humor, a little bit of meta, meta comedy, a, a lot of meta comedy actually, in here for the first time. There's a little less nudity, like in this Significantly one. Significantly less. And yeah, I think I read in my research somewhere that this is the, has the least nudity of any Friday the 13th movie ever, even though it does include the... Of course, we've got, we still, it's Friday the 13th. You still got to have a sex scene. But. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> they were clothed during that. During they were. That scene. They were. Uh, they, had, they had asked the actress to take the top off, but she declined. Uh, as she is... should. I mean, it wasn't necessary. Yeah. It, it didn't need, no. it didn't matter. Before we jump into our full discussion and the scholarship, because there is, not surprisingly, scholarship for this film. Would you, Tony, give us a brief reminder of what happened in this particular film? So following fan outrage, producers caved to fan desires and retconned the events of Friday the 13th Part 5. Almost immediately, <laughs> Tommy, he's back, but he is definitely not Jason. Jason is dead, and so Tommy goes and he's like getting really paranoid, and so he's going to like make sure he's going to take care of Jason's body once and for all. But through some kind of Frankenstein-esque shenanigans, uh, almost, yes. is like the best way to describe it. Lightning strikes and Jason comes back to life. And yes. nobody believes Tommy at all. I mean, honestly, kind of in this universe as they shouldn't. He's portrayed as paranoid and it makes sense within the context of the universe. But that allows Jason to kind of go back on a killing spree, back through the camp where it all began. And we get, there's a lot of deaths, a lot less nudity, but it's basically Jason on steroids. And that's a really good setup for some of the scholarship that I want to talk about, that, that phrase of Jason on steroids, because 
the two pieces that I'm going to reference are both from the Horror Homerooms uh, Friday the 13th at 40, which we've been using all along in our discussion because it's just a bunch of really great, very accessible, very readable pieces. And the, there are two out of the like 10 or 12 articles over the entire franchise. There are two that are explicitly on Jason Lives, which I think tells you that there's a lot with this this text to work on. Yeah. And one of them is by person named Matthew Jones, and it's called Reanimating Collective Ecological Nightmares in Friday the 13th, Part 6, Jason Lives. Okay. And Jones... That's a fascinating title right there. Yeah, and, and Jones is an independent film scholar and film studies, photography, and media teacher, and looks a lot at, at eco-horror. And his argument is that in Jason Lives... Jason is presented to us as sort of the true definition of a monster as given to us by Noel Carroll. So Noel Carroll wrote The Philosophy of Horror. It's a really great sort of investigation into him trying to explain why horror is really important at a time when no one was receiving it as, as, a, as a critically important field. And Carroll talks about the fact that there's hybridity that it causes monstrosity, right? That that thing that is neither one nor the other is what disturbs us the most. You look scared or confused. Uh, I just was wanting to ask in positions in time, when did the original monster thesis kind of come out? And because I'm curious where this film is situated within that initial discussion. Uh, this film came out in 1986. And so I'm just kind of curious where the original monster discussion and kind of framing the horror genre kind of comes in as important. That's a really good question. Carol's book comes out in 1990. 1990. Uh, and Carol's book, mm-hmm, and Carol's book is called The Philosophy of Horror or Paradoxes of the Heart. And Carol is really looking at how what he calls art horror, right, is is enacting certain fears and anxieties. Monster theses, which we've talked a lot about on this podcast by Jeffrey Jerome Cohen, that doesn't come out until 96. So that one's definitely later. But I think that what's smart about Jones's article is that he's placing this in relationship with contemporary to this film's time, because he actually starts by talking about the fact that this is his first uh, sentence of his piece. In 1986, a cataclysmic environmental disaster at a nuclear plant in Russia fell upon the whole of the continent, afflicting and forever altering the life inhabiting its natural world. Right, so he starts by talking about Chernobyl, and he talks about the fact that there were these other things happening at that time in the sort of zeitgeist. There was a Times Beach incident in Missouri. There was the a pesticide poisoning in California. There was the Bhopal disaster in India. Like he lists all of these real world ecological nightmares that are happening like right around the time. And, and Chernobyl actually happens after Part Six comes out. But you know, nevertheless. It's this time when we are, to go to that term he's using, engaging in a collective ecological nightmare. And his argument stems from the fact, in part, that with Jason, because he's Jason on steroids, he's, he's really neither human nor non-human. He's almost just a force of nature. And, and the fact that lightning strikes to bring him back, that the, you know, it's, it's nature that literally brings him back, but also that even in that opening sequence, it's not only that lightning strikes multiple times and brings him back to life, but also the rain prevents Tommy's plan from working where he tries to set him on fire. So it's like he's a representative of the, like, the nature that will keep going that we have no control over. 
And it's it's interesting to sort of read Jones's discussion about the eco-gothic and and how the eco-gothic, this is a quote that he's referencing, interrogates and interprets the intriguing darkness in our increasingly troubled relationship to and representation of the more than human world. I think it's an interesting argument, particularly for understanding Jason as something that's like, he's not the human of the previous films. He really has become something more. I don't know if I, if this is my favorite examination of, of Jason Lowe's, because it, it doesn't seem quite as convincing to me as the other piece. But of course, he talks extensively, as he should, about the fact of how much this happens in nature, right? And, and sort of the yeah. ways that it causes us to interpret and investigate how uncomfortable nature makes us feel. I agree that it is an interesting argument. I'm kind of curious to hear what the second piece of scholarship is and to kind of hear how these, then we can kind of maybe talk about these two in relation to each other before diving into our own thoughts of Jason Live. Because I'm curious if this other, what angle is this other one coming at it from? Yeah, so what I like about Jones's piece is that he has a very explicit, clear argument that yeah. that encourages me to have thoughts whether or not it's entirely in alignment. The yeah. other piece, I think, is when I tell you what the topic is, you're going to be like, well, that makes sense to me. So it's it's by an individual named Brian Finelli, who writes about the genre of horror and all sorts of different things uh, and is an assistant professor at uh, Lackawanna College, or at least was mm -hmm. when they were updating their bio. And Finelli's piece is titled No Clowning Around the Gothic and Comedic Elements of Jason Lives. Okay, you see, so, that you know, is you, yeah, it's a good title. And, and so you read <laughs> this piece and you're like, I'm not sure anyone who reads this piece is like, I don't, I just completely disagree with this. I don't feel like it was well supported. Whereas I think that there's room for people to have pushback in Jones's, which makes Jones have the, the harder argument to sell. Oh, but it was sure. interesting just sort of reading Finelli's evidence to, to really support just the fact that this is a funny film. And from the opening scene where, you know, we're having all of these references explicitly to Frankenstein, the director, McLaughlin, said, my main objective was to give the audience a sense of the old gothic horror movies because I was trying to set a tone right from the beginning that this was going to be what the universal horror movies used to be. A stormy night, going to the cemetery, digging up the grave, and a monster coming back who's unstoppable. And I had found that Finelli, particularly fantastic. Yeah. I pulled that from my research as well into the film, into kind of the backstage filmmaking. And it was for, he like literally name dropped the film, the 19, early 1930s yes. Frankenstein film. And he, he talks about pulling direct shots. And I think you see that. And I love that Finelli is highlighting that here. It's a, it's, yes. a fantastic, it's a really good, it's a really clever example of the film being just that clever yes. it's not an oh beat yes. you over the head with it kind of joke it is what the film is engaging in it's like a very postmodern. modern I, I use that up top in my description it's a referencing something else but showing it presenting it in utterly a different fashion well and finelli even talks about in his piece that kevin williamson has directly cited this film as something he had in his head when he was working on Scream, right? Which is another obviously very postmodern meta film. And that's my favorite part about Jason Lives. So I appreciate the the Frankenstein setup and all that. But for me, the movie is funny and it's funny in some really clever ways, starting with that first shot 
of Jason through the eye of Jason, just like it's a just like it's a James Bond movie, right? We have a James Bond reference. We also have the the whole time, you know, with the grave digger. It's really hard not to think of Shakespeare in those moments, particularly the, the breaking Anne of the fourth wall. Yeah. yeah, and and then there's just some really great moments of dialogue. So those are the two pieces of scholarship. So I want us to keep in mind the ways in which this is, I think, an eco horror film. If eco horror is fascinated with that which is not entirely human. Yeah. And the ways that this is a, a comedy as much as, as it is a horror. I think I, I'm like willing to buy the eco-horror argument because I think it also, particularly because it maybe also have plays into like zombies largely. Yes. And like the, because I think this is also a fascinating example of like a natural born, more zombie or Frankenstein kind of like monster-esque creature. It's, yes. and I think that to you can extend that i think it's interesting that jones chooses to extend that to an ecological perspective it's not what i definitely got on my first read so i was intrigued to kind of hear that argument and i wonder if like going back and like re-watching the film well with maybe that in mind i might be like oh yes i mean i'm already thinking of it now like i'm running through all the forest and all the ca- the camp is mm-hmm. so much outdoors almost i think almost every kill in this movie happens yeah. outside uh, so yes, you know I what right. I, I think you know it, it's now now it's making me want to go back and rewatch this film already. Jones even talks about the in reference to that your idea about the zombies, right? He t- he talks about the makeup decisions. You know that before Jason puts on his mask, he is in these natural neutral color palette. Yeah, that that is very greens and browns and and is not necessarily I would assume what a reanimated corpse who had gone through all the things that Jason's body had gone through might be, right? It's really much more, it makes him feel very natural, even as he is simultaneously this unnatural creature. So I think that Jones has arguments to make but that are really sound, but I think you're right that it just takes a little bit more investigation to get there. Whereas, yeah. you know, Finelli's, you're like, ah, yes, this makes sense to me that that these yeah. comedic elements you're discussing are in there. I think it's definitely much more of like, a, it's like a case of like, Benelli's tapping into the text, whereas Jones's diving argument requires you to really dive into the subtext of the film. Yes. And, and I think both But this are, is a film that has subtext. Yes, I was about to say, I was like, I think we had, despite our kind of like mild enjoyment, I would say, of the fifth one, we were pretty critical of how like just straightforward everything is exactly as you expected to happen, literal, basic kind of like slasher the fifth one was i can't really say that about this one it really kind of takes you in some weirdly comedic directions i like the way that the story plays with tommy and it was i kind of i was did in my in my research they kind of reference it in a video game the events of the fifth movie they're like that they established canonically that it was a dream Uh, right classic classic horror logic where it's just whatever you need to do to get to the next one but you know what it's it was pretty fun yeah one of the things that i struggled with in the fifth film and i've struggled with increasingly as the franchise is built is that this is a franchise full of some really zany characters that are just wildly weird right and i think the fifth one i think about the mother-son duo that are like at the trailer park and he's literally eating slop and there's this weird affect where i think it's being used as a comedic device but it's not being used but it's not funny right it's not funny because the source of horror 
actually, well, the source of horror as well, but the source of comedy is unclear. Like, are we supposed to be laughing because this is a satirical portrayal and it's supposed to make us have thoughts about like society or are we supposed to be laughing because it's just so ridiculously over the top? Yeah, Yeah. we're disgusting. And and I think the answer is, is that they don't know. They just kind of shoved it in there and assumed that we would find it funny. Whereas this film builds these comedic moments for with intention. I think one of the best examples I can think of is the the paintballing team. Yes, right? I was, the corporate paintball scene yes. is so funny. I yes, and it's so. I, I remember getting to that part and being like, the specificity of the scene. Yes, I think is what makes it so funny. Is because you're like, how many things can actually be done in the woods? And you're like, actually, if you think about it. There is a weird number of things that you can rent out the woods to do. And this corporate paintball, it gets you to introduce Jason to a different kind of character and killing a different kind of person than he typically does. He usually, I mean, he's been killing, like, as you've been saying, we've been saying is increasingly like these, like, non-human, like these, like, uncanny valley human people, essentially, where they are like, you are, you're basically rooting for them to die. And I mean, you are still kind of, you're not like super invested in these corporate assholes or whatever, but it's a different kind of person, which is fun. It is. And it allows us to have some actually really pointed sources of, of humor because there's first off the idea that like, there's a, uh, the one guy says to his friend, he's like, I don't like who you become when we're playing paintball, you know, and he's like, I'm not in sales. I'm a killer. You know, I have killer instinct or something like that. And this, I think really, actually, I would love to hear Finelli and George kind of enter in a conversation together because what this scene is reminding us is that we as a society really don't have a killer instinct when compared to killers, <laughs> Right. Like, so there's that whole element in there. But then there is also and and Finelli talks about this. This is a film that is highly critical, very intentionally and explicitly of masculinity in a way that we haven't seen since some of our early films. So, of course, we have Jennifer, who's constantly sort of being antagonistic towards her dad, the sheriff. I'm sorry, that's Megan. Megan is the one who is dad is the sheriff. Yes. Okay. So Megan, the character, right, is constantly questioning her father. Uh, and I think that Jennifer Cook does an excellent job of, of sort of playing in that role. Yeah. Obviously, this insurance worker, this, the sort of, um, you know, the paintballing scene, they're talking about how, you know, this is a man's game. And then, of course, the, the woman kills them. And then, of course, we have toxic masculinity where that one guy's throwing a, a sort of hissy fit with his machete. And then, of course, the machete gets used on him. But there's also that scene, you know, we have the people who first stumble upon Jason and she's like, nope, I've seen those horror movies. We need to leave. And he's like, no, we don't. No, we don't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, then there's also the the scene of the couple where she's like, I'm so sorry that I thought you lured me out here to to have sexy time. And then he like, he says all the lines that we would expect a woman to say. He's like, well, I have a headache and I don't know, I'm just tired, you know, and, and just kind of makes making fun of that. And then there's the scene the sex scene, which is also making fun of sort of traditional masculinity because, you know, the the guy isn't able to even last 10 minutes. And, you know, partly because he's a bad driver and and not attuned to the situation, the girl he's with dies as fast as she does, you know. And so there's all of these ways, again, where the comedy is so explicitly purposeful. And that is really exciting to see. Yeah. And I really do just think that it was a fun way to kind of recontextualize the franchise because and really I'm glad that the producers kind of like took a look at their 
mistakes that they had been making for with the franchise so far and kind of adjusted course to highlight it is pretty silly a lot of this stuff i mean oh it's delightfully silly delight like and i think that by kind of like leaning against it and like trying to make jason more into a mike myers type of stoic godlike figure which is clearly what the fans they wanted after the fifth one and i think by they do give it to them in the sixth one but it's also constantly questioning why you want that is this necessary and and i think it also kind of does justify it by doing these really interesting things with toxic masculinity that like you were mentioning i thought that i think that's a really fascinating art i hadn't really i hadn't really picked up on that either when i was just watching it i think I was so delighted just by like the by yeah. so much of the comedy, and I really and I liked how they brought us back to the camp in a really interesting way this time around. It had been renamed something. It, I can't remember the name, the new name of Forest it. Forest Green. Forest Green. Yeah, which again goes back to Jones's you know discussion about how this film is making us question whether we can ever claim nature as tamed. Absolutely. Oh, that's pretty interesting. Also, I think it plays into this like desire for us to after tragedy just rebrand and move on. Like exactly. which is I fascinating critique to think about from like nineteen eighty-six. And it's particularly fascinating to think about in a film that is doing that very thing, right? Yeah. Like it's rebranding. The film is itself. like, you're right, you didn't like the last film, you didn't like where we go. We heard you, we are rebranding and fixing it. And so it's it's really a delightfully amusing that they are acknowledging that that rarely works because you can't bury the past but also (laughs) right and i guess to a certain degree it like did a little bit this film has a much more positive reception from the fan base it got and it got a bit more positive response from critics even at the time for what it's worth the rotten tomato aggregate has it somewhere around the 50s range as of when we're recording it which is you know, middling. It's a critics are particularly tough on horror as a genre yes. whole, as a whole, particularly at this time because now, I didn't realize that these horror scholars uh, had written those pieces so late. I, in my mind, I had kind of positioned them closer to maybe the seventies or early eighties. But it's interesting to see yeah. those come nineties. So but- even when I was working on my on my dissertation in the like around twenty fifteen ish. Even then, I don't think we had quite hit that period where it was acceptable to do this unless you'd first established yourself somewhere else. Yeah. Right? Like, so Carol is a philosopher that happened to be very successful and then wrote a book. You know, Jeffrey Jerome Cohen, I think, is like an anthropologist or sociologist or something like that. So there's definitely, you know, like the 90s, those are our trailblazers. And for a very long time, it was like, these are the only people that were really reading that doesn't mean that those were the only people writing horror, but those were the only ones that like people would suggest when you were doing your scholarship. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, for 1986, yeah, it's not going to be super a cultural do- darling, right? A critical darling. Because I don't think, I don't think it's been until Peel and Aster and, you know, some of the recent films that we've begun to re-acknowledge. Right, well, cra- I guess be- maybe some stuff from like maybe Craven, like from yes. like particularly from like scream and i think there's been a re-examination of those films culturally but definitely not necessarily at the time 
No, at the time, uh, the New York Times wrote, but despite a few lighter touches, the film is still a gory waste of time that plays its murders for all the blood and guts they're worth. And Siskel uh, said the film was the least offensive in the series, but labeled it as an all too familiar bloody ritual, which to me means that Siskel is not familiar with what's happening because it actually is not in comparison a familiar ritual. But, you know, that's that's what's being said at the time. I do want to talk about a little bit more. You you mentioned the, the how lovely it was to return back to the camp. And I, I thought that yeah. this film's use of the children was really effective. Sometimes just for humor, one of my favorite moments that happened like in 30 seconds was when the girls were sleeping in their beds. It showed the one little girl who was writing a really painstakingly handwritten note to yeah. home that just said, like, I have arrived at camp. And then it pans <laughs> yeah. over or cuts to the girl reading Sartre. That <laughs> was like this. This is golden, you know? And of course, there's the, the famous line about, you know, the dead meat. And the one little yeah. boy asked the other little boy, like, what were you, what did you want to become if we'd been allowed to grow up? And that dead meat line, of course, is, is where the YouTuber dead meat, dead meat uh, yeah. title comes from. But even dead meat there's a, a scene. He has a good video about this one. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And this is where he kind of got started, right? It was by looking at the Friday the 13th franchise. And even even like the interactions with the the camp counselors and the and the uh, kids is is reminds us of the ridiculousness of camp, right? Because we have a group of Absolutely. teenagers who often received no training in how to take care of or educate or like keep alive small children. And that scene where Core is like making up that story about Native American markers, and he's yeah. like, you know, and if the dad just wants to get away, and you know, like it was just. I also love that even though like two of their friends like die pretty quickly into like them starting, they're just like, well, we just got to keep on keeping on. Not really like going to investigate that too much. la di da di da Camp must go on. The the weird thing right about camp is like, you're usually not that far away from civilization. You might be a couple of hours, right? But like you're never, there's always a phone or something that you have access to. But we always treat camp as though like, well, you know, them's the breaks. You're in the middle of nowhere. So I guess you just have to die. Instead, it's like, yeah. why can't we just take the bus and leave? You know, like, Absolutely. yeah, it's so interesting. It's pretty silly. But I yes, <laughs> but that's what I like about it is like, it just treats this. But what is different than like some where what I don't always love is like when it just treats these situations as super silly. I think that they treat I what I like is that they the actors within each of these scenes like treat the situations as pretty seriously. And they're not in, they're not telling jokes necessarily. Yes. There's like those occasional moments of cutaway to the camera, like where the like, guy is like, why would you bring back Jason or what or whatever? Right. Like, right. Where it's like really ob- like, okay, that's a little corny. It's kind of funny, but it's corny. But most of it, they kind of keep the internal stakes of it and just like let you laugh at the situation. Or the little jokes that, like, the visual gags that they set up, which is very fun. I think that's, it shows a surprising amount, and I can't believe I'm saying this about a film in this franchise, but restraint that is not necessarily, that is not necessarily, I mean, this franchise has not always had that restraint. That's an interesting word to, to use, first off, you're right, for the franchise, but also for a film that also gives us in the first few minutes a really explicit nod to James Bond films <laughs> because it's it's not a film that is afraid to go places. So what when you think of restraint in this film, what are you meaning? 
I really like the storyline that they keep us uh, keep going back with Tommy, where they are keep very seriously like they can lock him up. He has to escape. He goes on this really serious journey, and yeah, they're all of this wacky shenanigans is happening around it. But they keep the stakes up during that, and like I yes, they will have these kind of silly joke long jokes that they'll do or the cutaways like I mentioned but I think in comparison to like with the fourth and fifth film especially of this franchise where it just kind of felt like they were doing these weird grotesque jokes or like jokes that were like just a, their characters are just I'm an obnoxious person like yeah. I, I feel this film at least does us the courtesy of gesturing better at characters or and yes. particularly in the case of Tommy and Megan and I even and the police officer character, I I think they give us some pretty interesting characters here that kind of ground the story and like I guess maybe restraint is the wrong word. Maybe it's more a little bit more grounded than mm-hmm. some of the other films, even despite the silly like bits that it's doing. Yes, there's there's a feeling in particularly I think four and five where. It almost feels like they used a Mad Libs exercise, right? Where they were like, mm-hmm. give me a character that feels wacky to you. And they're like, um, yes. Yes. a weird mother-son duo where she feeds him slop. And they're like, brilliant. That's in there now. And then they yeah. just like shoved them in. Whereas I think you're right. I think grounded is is the best phrase because McLaughlin is clearly keeping everything authentic to the world he has crafted like the the corporate the corporate folks are a great example in the paintball like those are like real human beings that maybe you've bumped into at the bank or something or like at the supermarket and it's so and that's a very interesting real life situation that yeah it's pretty humorous you probably maybe have i've never done that myself gone out on a corporate paintball retreat but you know what? It does feel like something that someone in like a high level sales department would get to do as like one of their perks. And I feel like that's a very specific kind of funny example that is very human and grounded. But it's also it's so specific. And that's why it's funny rather than there, there's being, even. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Rather than I think in some of the other ones, like we are saying, it's just like just an amalgamation of like, here's some bad character traits. Let's just like put a character. That's a character now. Yeah, yeah. And there's even, to go into the, that corporate retreat element, there's there's a couple of horror movies that that is their entire premise, right? Uh, Severance, which came out in 2006, that is about a team-building retreat in the mountains where they're hunted down one by one. There's a film called Corporate Animals that came out in 2019 that's also a corporate retreat theme. So this okay, is something that, like, I think people began to realize the absurdity that is corporate retreats. And I think you're right that that's what McLaughlin asked himself was not what is absurd, but what is absurd that actually happens in real life, that that's that's the thing we can investigate. And every single situation in this film, like you said, we've run into people like that. We've been in situations like that. There was nothing in there that you didn't understand where that was coming from, even with our, our police you know there was the guy who was really excited about having his laser scope that also felt surprisingly authentic you know there was just everything about the film the characters i think you're right they felt real in a way that we haven't seen in the franchise for a while and so i think that that's maybe like grounded and restrained or like i think they are fitting words for it and despite the overall silliness that it brings 
which I think is fun. I think that's a fun addition to it. I don't, I like that you get to kind of like have your stoic, big Jason imposing, but also he's going to have to do a silly James Bond bit too. Yeah. And like, you know what? He's going to get to be stoic and brooding and kill a lot of people, but he's also going to do a silly little bit. And yes. And even the lines that fell for me, like the, when the grave digger has the line about like, what do they think? I am a fart head, right? You know, yeah. that, that line obviously didn't cause me to, to roll laughing, but there were several times I did laugh out loud at this film. But knowing that even that ridiculousness maybe doesn't have a real world framework, but has this very explicit literary history, right? Of the fool who's often a grave digger, who's breaking the fourth wall, who's having these conversations that you're like, I don't know what's happening. This feels very real, but also very fake and staged. Like whether or not that's that particular character, he was thinking about Hamlet when he crafted it. You can tell that McLaughlin is very aware of the larger tradition. Of the larger traditions in horror, in Friday the 13th, and even just in pop culture, right? We have him using the Frankenstein reference at the beginning. And then when the scene with Court in the RV, right, they're listening to Alice Cooper's Young Frankenstein. So there's just lots of ways that this film is just very aware. To go back to the thing you said at the beginning, that makes it a postmodern film. And the film did pretty well uh, at the box office. It was... These films thrive on costing nothing to make, and particularly in the film of like larger Hollywood. It costs three million to make and earns nineteen point four million at the U.S. box office. I mean, I would take it. <laughs> uh, it so. it's, that's I mean, it's enough to get greenlit for a sequel, and and that's that's kind of what you have to do. And I do want to say again how appreciative I am by how explicitly this film says, we heard what you were saying and we will fix it. It's in the title and it's also in that song that's playing while the credits are rolling, which was a delightful song where they're like, Jason's back alive and doing the things you want him to do. And you're like, this is a a film that is really explicitly saying, we heard you and we are course correcting accordingly. It's it's interesting. I guess film producers were a lot more attuned to their audiences back then. Or at least the people who were, like, literally showing up to the theaters. Uh, yes, the people who were paying for things. Yeah, so, which, you know, it's interesting. It seemed to work out. Definitely not well. a world I we like, live in now. N- not necessarily. <laughs> I can, still can't believe that the director of The Nightmare ever let, ever said that quote to a reporter about not liking the franchise that he was working on a movie for. I know that that happens later on in the Friday franchise, so we'll get there eventually. Uh, but I it, I just like the things you're working on, people. And I feel like they like the thing And don't make everyone be miserable. Yeah, absolutely. Don't make everyone be miserable. There was a recent article that I didn't click on because I didn't need to, but it was, I mean, like, it just came out. So we're filming on the 12th for our own Friday the 13th of 2023. It just came out, like, in the last week that was by one of the actresses that was a nightmare and it said that she would couldn't be in any more horror films because of how just terrible of an experience being on that film was because because in part of the director i think and the conditions and you know like whereas you get the impression that in this film and and jason lives you're having a good time and i did like tommy the actor that that played tommy better in this film because he wasn't 
playing a version of Tommy that he thought was from a serious role. And I keep going back to your, your like sharing in the last episode that the <laughs> actor who played Tommy thought he was in a serious film about mental illness, yeah. <laughs> which is, it's not funny that he did all that prep work, but it is funny. It is um, so funny. No, it is funny. I, I, but, they lied, so they lied to him. And oh my gosh. <laughs> and he's so tortured in that, the, he plays such a yes. tortured version of Tommy in that film that is not appropriate for the script. No, right? absolutely Whereas not. It's not this Tommy, which we got the, this version, this actor yes. playing Tommy because the previous actor became a, a born again Christian and didn't want to reprise his role, which is also like a, an interesting, another element to add to the story of that actor. Yeah. Good film overall. I'm glad we kept going through this franchise. The last one was a little bit like, I don't know where they're going to go with this. I knew that they were course correcting, but I didn't think they could course correct kind of this hard. You tell me yes. though that I should not get my, you said, or you said this right before we started recording, that I should not get my hopes up going forward. Is that yeah. referring to the immediate next film? Do you know? Or is that just in general? I, I don't know. What I can tell you is is how Finelli ends, ends his article, and I will go into that in a second. I, I do want to say that I think that one of the things McLaughlin gives us is these moments of, of awareness of also the, like, I mean, there's a character named Heather, right, who's having nightmares. And there are all of these things that he does that, again, go back to the restraint that, that create a very strange peak, right? I think with the nightmare on Elm Street franchise, we kind of talked about how it's like a, they feel very nesting doll-esque, right? Like each one's kind of adding on the other, even when they have nothing to do with the previous story. Um, but this one really feels more like it's, you know, just kind of like a line graph. And we have this really sharp peak with this film. Because what, what Finelli says is that part seven, A New Blood, sees Kane Hodder take up the hockey mask and resume that role for several more sequels. And I will say, Many people are a huge fan of Kane Hodder as Jason. So he's one of the most beloved Kane oh, Hodders. Yes. Or not he's not not one of the most beloved Kane Hodders. He's one of the most beloved Jasons, Kane Hodder is. But then Finelli says that the next film, A New Blood, is more serious in tone. However, more than 30 years after its release, Jason Lives remains a fan favorite because it did something different with the exhausted franchise. It referenced horror history, including locations named Carlos General Store and Cunningham Road, and it infused several Gothic elements that nod to the Universal era. Furthermore, yeah. its unique style of comedy was a breath of fresh air in a series that had largely become stagnant. McLaughlin masterfully balanced laughs with memorable kills, often within a single scene. As a result, Jason Lives is the Friday the 13th sequel that resonates more than many of the others. That's so based beautiful. on just how Finelli's, yeah, based on how Finelli's describing it, I assume that it's going to get a little bit less, yeah. right? That it's just going to sort of begin to to deteriorate again as a franchise. But we'll find out. And I also can't believe we didn't mention until the very end, they swapped out the Jason. Yes. And did you know the story of where they found this guy? No. Oh my gosh. So this he was working at kind of at a restaurant that also kind of did like live performances and during one sequence this there was this sequence in which a magician hypnotized people into thinking they were in Friday the 13th and this guy played Jason in this like magic act sketch oh and gosh. somebody involved with the film saw the sketch and brought the film team to it and then they were like, that guy's great. Let's hire him. That's hysterical. 
because and so they let so the guy original person who played Jason they left him in for the paintball scene because they had shot him but they didn't really like his the new team didn't yeah. really like his performance so they had found this guy in a magic act and then they were like you're Jason isn't that crazy it is crazy and it and I love I love the the sheer ridiculousness of a magic act that makes you think that you're living a horror film because that feels fake to me, right? If if I saw that in a horror movie, I'd be like, that's so silly. But the fact that's real actually makes the scene in Jason Lives where they're playing the card game, Camp Blood, and she's like, okay, the goal is to find Jason. Like that makes that scene even wittier. That's so delightful. Yeah, it was it was pretty crazy. I was I remember just kind of reading that through. It was almost as crazy as the like evangelical Christian guy who didn't yes. come back in terms of just just so much wacky things involved in the making of it. Yeah, he was from he was from an the area of rest. He was a restaurant manager and former soldier, and it was a stage. It was he was a part of the stage show. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. I that was a I, the reason. Yeah, I love researching. That's fantastic. I know, I know. I was you find these crazy little facts about like how the film, how the sausage gets made. <laughs> yes. And I would so rather find out, like, I like those things, right? Like when, whenever we're finding out that, you know, the writer directors were these like garbage people that yeah. basically made everyone on set miserable. I don't want to, I don't need to read those stories anymore. So I'm glad that, you know, we have a writer director like Tom McLaughlin, who's creating an, an intriguing environment and an environment where someone feels comfortable saying, this may sound wacky, but I just saw this this magic routine. I found our new Jason. Yeah. Like that's fantastic. CJ Graham does a really key. That's the name of the person we've been referencing. He does a pretty good job as Jason. I I liked Bradley. Does Bradley was pretty good. I mean, he's always mm-hmm. been solid. But honestly, I hate to say it's not that difficult because I mean, I definitely couldn't do it. But he does a great job. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, his job is to be big and kill people. And kill people, and I think that between his physicality and some of the decisions, and his training in the magic act, yeah. And there is even this. Um, Jones talks about the fact in his argument of the sort of nature and the inhumanness of Jason. He does talk about the fact that Jason appears and disappears almost magically, right? That with this like sort of supernatural, like he's literally somewhere he wasn't just two seconds ago. So that also just adds another delightful element. We would love to, as always, hear from you all about what are your thoughts. Both Tony and I are very cognizant of the fact that we are talking about a franchise that people have very strong feelings about, and we are both like babes in the wood. Absolutely. And that we have not sat with these films as long as many of you have. So we would love no, to know your no. thoughts. You, you are deaf. There are definitely people who have seen these films way more than us, and we'd love oh, to yeah. hear your opinion. So get in touch with Considering us. Considering that some of these media. films. Yeah. You only have to have seen twice to have seen more than us. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So get so, in touch with us social via media. our social medias, our, which are linked here, our email. You can also get in touch with us. We'd, so if wherever you get listen to your podcast, go ahead and give us a rating there. We'd love to hear from you there. That helps us get the word out about our next episodes. Huzzah! Before we tell you what our next episode is, I want to make sure to thank Jackson O'Brien because... Yes. He is the reason that this episode sounds as fantastic as it does. So thank, thank you, you so much Jeff. for editing this episode. Tony, what should people watch and be prepared to 
listen to the next episode on. So we are definitely going to return to the Friday the 13th franchise. So if people want to continue and watch the seventh entry, we will get there soon enough. So we'll be there soon. But we are, before going there, going to go to a more recent horror fair and talk about 2022's Barbarian. So if you haven't seen it, you can check that one out. It's on HBO Max for those who are subscribed there. And you can also rent it wherever you get videos. Thank you so much for listening to our nightmares. And have a spectacular day.